Back to Philippians chapter 1. If you haven't turned there already, we'll continue in our study from a couple of weeks ago. A break for family camp and begin to study this book about joy. And that's really what you see in this book is God's desire for us to have abundance. And, and that is what this initial passage is driving towards here as we consider the work that God has begun in us. You know, sometimes when you look at your lives, you look and think, boy, I just, it doesn't seem like I've, I've changed very quickly, if at all. And we know God is the agent of change, and we're in the process of change. But if you really look back, you can realize that God has somehow managed to take this sinful bum and mold him a little bit, you know, file off the rough edges, and, and impart Christ-like into our Christ-likeness into our lives. And it's, a, it's his work, and it's an amazing work, it's a work that a legalistic approach to Christianity, that is a do's and don'ts approach, can never accomplish. It's only something that can be supernaturally accomplished by the power of God as God changes us from the inside out as we surrender to the work he is doing. And that's what verse 6 is talking about in this passage. It introduces this section to us, that work that God is doing in our lives to make us Christ-like. We left off last time here in verse 9 when it begins to talk about and abounding love. Let's go ahead and read a few verses here to catch the end of this, um, this section. It's where it says in verse 9, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now verse 11 is, in the end of verse 10, in the last half of verse 10 and verse 11, I should say, it ought to be the hope of the believer. We want to be sincere. That is not unhypocritical. We want to live out our identity in Christ. We want to be without offense. We don't want to keep people from knowing Christ and, and honoring God. We want to be filled. That's filled to the full with fruits of righteousness. And we want that all then to bring glory and praise to God, which indicates to us a life well lived. At the end of our lives, we can say we brought glory and praise to God. That is a life that has been directed by the Spirit as a result of walking with Christ. And that should be our hope, our expectation. That's what we should be striving for. You know, we, don't, we come to church not just to do our time, our duty to hear a little sermonette for Christianettes. We come to be transformed, don't we? To be changed, to, to allow God to do this work in us that he has begun. And that's why we read the Bible in our private times. That's why we go to Bible studies and, and share with fellow believers and come to church because God is doing that work that he's going to accomplish someday. In the day of Christ, in verse 10, it refers to that day when we're with him. We're going to see him, we're going to be like him, because we're going to see him as he is, the Bible says. And God is going to fulfill that work. In the meantime, he's working on it. And here, here in verse 9, in that context of, of the process of change, he prays about a love that is discerning. That's the words we see in this passage. And this love is your love, he says in verse 9, that your love may abound. That's what God wants. He wants the love of the believer to be growing and abounding more and more and more. That's one of the that's one of God's objectives in this undertaking of making us like Christ, of growing us, of working in us to be like Christ. However, this love in this passage has a qualifier, it has a focus. This isn't just a general statement about love. It's about a direction that God has in mind in this passage. And that is 
that the, ultimately that this love might grow in knowledge, it might be discerning, that it might approve things are excellent. You know, when you consider what the Bible says about love, we often think of one or two areas, love for God and love for others. Luke 10, 27, Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Two of the primary expressions of the love of God are in those directions, aren't they? And we see that expressed here in this passage. We saw Paul says, this is in my heart for you. I want to see this accomplished in you. God's growing your love to a multiple, in multiple proportions. But here, what we see is God focusing in on a specific aspect of love, and that is things. That's what he calls it, things. Interesting word, terminology. You know, sometimes we think... The Bible has to use flowery words, big words, you know, that, that we don't understand. He just says a simple things. Things that are excellent. That's what God wants our love to, to, to grow in, approving things that are excellent. And while this might include how we express our love for God and how we love are to love one another, here he's going to zero in on things in life, excellent things. And they may include, my list is short, yours might be shorter or longer. It might include right beliefs, right values right behaviors, right practices, right perspectives, right priorities. Really, an excellent, the, the excellency of these things is a biblical perspective on how we ought to live. All those things. All those things. Beliefs, values, behaviors, practices, perspectives, priorities, and you can add that to that list, are the building blocks of our lives. It's how we express our lives. And God wants to be sure that the expression of our lives are excellent. That's what God has. So that's the address here. God wants to bring us into what is the excellent, what is the best for us and how we live, because in Christ, as Christ ones, once we identify with Christ, we ought to live in a way that honors God. We're not here for God to bless our plans and to make our life better. Though life is good when you walk with Christ, we're here to glorify Him in the process. In that process, God is forming us to be like Christ. And when we consider our lives, the building blocks of our lives, the values of our lives, the behaviors of our lives, the attitudes of our lives, the priorities of our lives. Are they good or are they excellent? That's the question here. That's the things God is addressing. The word excellent, according to the Greek linear that I have, means being superior. The Vines Dictionary describes this as, in one, in one sense, the word is used as something different, to differ, but especially to excel or to be better. And so what God is doing here is, is introducing a contrast between the good and the excellent, between one thing and the excellent, that which is superior. And we, we presume that is referring to primarily, if you want to generalize it, to, God's, to man's wisdom and perspective versus God's wisdom and perspective from a secular worldview, if you prefer, to a, to a biblical worldview. And what we have to realize is that in God's eyes, there's a difference between the good and the excellent. That's what this passage is teaching us. And that's what God wants us to understand. Good is my plan. Excellent is God's. Often, you might, if, you want to, if you want to qualify it that way. Because it's easy as believers to slip into a rut of living an upright life, a moral life, a kind life, a religious going to church on Sunday life, and never giving consideration to a daily walk with Christ. That's one of the excellent things God has for us. He has more than just a few religious observances. He wants us to walk with Christ, and that takes focus. 
it's easy just to kind of just, well, I'll just avoid the things that will ruin my reputation, and I'll just live a moral life. And that doesn't take a lot of focus. But it does take a requirement of, to walk by faith and dependence upon God, to walk with Christ. It takes a surrendering to Christ. It's all about the abiding life that John describes in John 15. It's about engage, being engaged with Christ and the things of Christ. It's about letting, I like to say, not my light shine, but his light shine through me. That's what it means to walk with Christ. And too many believers just go through life morally or uprightly. They're acceptable. I think churches are full of religiously moral Christians who go to church on Sunday. But are they walking with Christ? His life is the essence of life, as Paul will see later in this chapter. For to me to live is Christ. That's the better way to live. That's the higher road, as one author put it. The higher plane is to be walking daily in a dependent relationship with Christ as he directs now that translates to some of the same things. We're going to have, we're going to live, you know, biblically, righteously, morally, but we're going to do so with the joy of the Lord being our motivation each and every day. See, for believers to not live redemptively in reality is not an option in life. We live to redeem our time and redeem opportunities because it's the heart of the one who lives in me. To walk with Christ is to share in his life, it's to live his heart, the one whose life I'm privileged to share. And so many Christians settle for what they consider to be good, or good enough is really what it comes down to, and they forfeit the excellent. And God would draw us into that deeper relationship with him to experience the excellent. A second aspect of the good of man versus the excellency of God is that often believers never consider the will of God in their daily lives. Well, they might consider it when it comes to big decisions. But that daily walk with Christ is expressed in the Lord, what would you have me to do? It's really easy to get in today thinking that if I accomplished my chores today, if I kept everything clean today and everything in order today, got everything done today, that I had a successful day. Is it? Is that successful? Really, before God? Is there somebody that maybe God placed on your heart to write a note to, to give a call to, to go visit, to pray for, that you just didn't have time for because you're doing the good stuff? Are you doing the excellent? What is the will of God? Remember, as we discussed the book of Introduction to Philippians, that Paul had some good intentions. He wanted to go south, he wanted, or north, he wanted to go south, and, and God says, no, I'm going to send you west. Nothing. Good intentions, but it wasn't God's perfect will. Romans 12, when we talk about our surrendering ourselves, a living sacrifice to God, ultimately accomplishes in knowing the perfect will of God. Does God have something different for us today? That makes it the excellent. And oftentimes, service is sacrificial. Sometimes we can't get through, that, through our heads. That serving God is not on our disposable time. It means something in our life is going to suffer. Whether it's financial, whether it's time, whether whatever it is. That's what serving Christ is. It's sacrificial. It doesn't mean that we're going to run around thinking, what can I give up today to please God? It means that I just put him first because I'm walking with him and I want his best for me today, which is his will for me today. And often, it is not what I want today. Sometimes, we think our will is God's will. Remember Saul? You know, when he was supposed to kill all the people and all the animals and and yet he obeyed God halfway. He seemed reasonable to him to keep the best of the people and the oxen and the sheep. And Samuel comes and says, what's this bleeding in the ear and bleeding I'm hearing? What's these, I'm hearing these animals that are supposed to have been slaughtered. 
incomplete obedience. And we often do that with God because we justify our lives in doing something good, but not necessarily the perfect will of God in our daily lives. A third aspect I think of sometimes the good we substitute for the excellent is that we don't always examine ourselves before God, what our attitudes are, what our priorities are. You know, we grow up think with certain perspectives and values, and whether they're family, cultural, sometimes even church-based or whatever, and are we willing to really examine, are those biblical? There's many values that we pick up from the culture that aren't necessarily biblical. And are we willing to settle for that? Do we want to really reflect the glory of God? You know, I think sometimes of, of the passages in Scripture that what God, Jesus tells us that we're going to be known by the world through a couple of things, through our, through our unity, through our love, and through our light shining to them. And I wonder, does that happen? How does that happen? Well, it's when believers have different values, attitudes, and practices than the world does. And so are we willing to lay those before God? We're too often content with the good and not interested in change in our lives, not real intrinsic change in my values and how I do things. Well, I always do it this way. I always come to church and do things this way, and I always do it that way, and I only go to church once a week, or I go to church three times a week, or whatever we do. Are we really laying it on the altar as we sing? And we come and sing, I lay all on the altar, sacrifice laid. Do we? You know, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18, you know, I, I mention this verse often because it tells us how we're changed. We know that we behold in the, in the Lord and the mirror of the Word of God and the Spirit of God produces change in our lives. That's the glory of that verse. That chapter is about the work of the Spirit to, to, to accomplish that work that we're talking about today. But you know, there's a qualifier at the beginning of that verse. But we all with an unveiled face. Now I'm not going to get into the whole illustration analogy with Moses in that chapter. You can read it at your leisure. But what it means is that I'm wide open before God. I come before God and saying, God, show me. Show me me. Show me your way. And sometimes God does that through another believer who maybe has a different practice than you, a different attitude than you, a different perspective than you. And you just think, well, that's just, he's just a goody two-shoes. And we excuse it away. Or that's his, his way, not my way. And I'm not saying that we have to be just like each other, but sometimes God will prick us to make, maybe examine. And area in our lives, we never thought about laying before the Lord. Unveiled face opens up every aspect before my God and saying, show me. And when you really consider the fact that the believers to walk by faith, Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Then we realize that every one of those little details, those things that this passage says, those things in our lives needs to be operated, embraced, lived by faith. It needs to be lived in light of God's word because that's what faith is. It's faith, trusting God to direct us as he directs us through his word. So we trust God to show us the light of his word to show us the right things in our lives, the right perspectives, the right priorities in our lives as we embrace the Word of God. A fourth good that we often sometimes sell for as Christians comes in regards to discerning, as this passage tells us, not only between right and wrong, but between truth and error. Sometimes Christians are very prone to settle and be content to accept anybody using religious terminology as okay and good. And that's, you know, that's a touchy subject, I understand, because we have this idea that we have to be really tolerant as believers. And 
tolerating people and tolerating false beliefs are two different things. They're completely two different, completely different things. We sometimes think if someone's involved in a Christian activity, they must be Christian. That is a very dangerous deception straight from the arsenal of the devil. Because he's a deceiver. Jesus called him a liar while he was on the earth, and a murderer, and a thief who kills, steals, and destroys. And one of his taxes is to mix truth with error, often in the religious expressions and experiences of men and women. And we have to face it. If you, if you begin to read the Bible and the light of the Bible gives us that discernment, we find out false teaching is everywhere. Not just in secular science and man-centered philosophies, you know, that secular man-centered worldview. We see socially the world is embracing Satan's lie in his redefining of God's institutions, and we just look around us and think, you're crazy. We're redefining language so they can redefine institutions in our, in our, in our, in our, in our world and nation. Or a false gospel that incorporates works into the gospel of grace. Sometimes false teaching is teaching that twists the scriptures to accommodate our personal agendas and lifestyles. You know, it's kind of like wanting to know what God has to say on the matter. We, we do that, you know, that, that real spiritual method of just letting the Bible fall open somewhere and going, and we think that, okay, that's God's will. Well, I don't like that verse. Let's try it again. Oh, there I found one I like. Or, then I find, it says he went and hanged himself. I don't like that one. We do that. We might not do that method, but we get selective in the scriptures because we want life to go the way we think it ought to go. And, and, we, and we often find those teachings that accommodate our lifestyles and agendas. Sometimes out there, real prominent out there, is those religious experiences that emphasize believers' experience. And they elevate experience above the glory of God. And we're focused on what it does for me rather than how it glorifies God. We elevate experience over truth. And along with that, often compromise the teachings of Scripture in order to accomplish a false unity. And I, you know, we can go on and on, but one of the four things I think believers too often settle for is the good of getting along. I'm okay, you're okay. You know, they're, they're, they're a Christian church, they must be okay. And hopefully they are. And it's not that we want to suspect everybody. We just want to be aware that Satan is a deceiver. And God wants us to have the excellent, which is the perfect knowledge of his word. He wants us to have right beliefs, does he not? You know, a verse that's well known even in the world is the truth sets us free. And it does. It sets us free from, not only from wrong thinking, but from and wrong practices and wrong attitudes, but from wrong belief systems as well. Do you realize that when the Bible talks about biblical compromise, it warns us of what it does to us? It warns us that in Colossians 2 8, it cheats us. Some versions say it enslaves us, it takes us captive away from the fullness we have in Christ. That's the focus of Colossians 2 8. It cheats us of that. The fullness we have in Christ and that we can experience in Christ is short-circuited because right living is based on right thinking. Faith is based on right information. And we must understand God's word and be willing to stand for it and mark and avoid those things that oppose it. 2 Timothy 2.26 tells us that when people fall into error, they're taken captive to do the will of Satan. They're ensnares them. In 2 John 8, I think John taught on a few years ago, it, taught, it tells us that we lose our full reward. Full reward of the blessing of the fullness of Christ when we accommodate false teachers. 
And of course, we don't treat people like enemies or ogres. The Bible says in meekness we instruct those that oppose themselves. But we're to cast down every thought of, and bring every thought to the obedience of Christ. You see, because false teaching keeps people from salvation, it keeps people from being rescued God's way, it keeps the, it keeps the world from sanity and stability, it keeps the believers from the abundance that stems from knowing the Lord, and it keeps the believers from enjoying that full blessing that comes from the knowledge of God. And so we often get become content with the good in all those different aspects of life. And there may be more facets that you can think of that, that in which believers are often satisfied for the good rather than the excellent. And so, how do we arrive at the excellent? It's pretty simple here, isn't it? As we read verse 9, it tells us that our love must abound more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. That precedes approving excellent things in our lives. It begins with a discernment that's dependent on the knowledge of God. Discernment, we know simply, is the ability to determine what's right and wrong, what's truth and what's error. It's the, it's the biblical filter we use to, to filter out the bad and embrace the good in all the things of life. But it must be based in knowledge, just the kind of knowledge God's talking about. He's not talking about scientific knowledge or philosophical knowledge or family knowledge or any other kind of knowledge. He's talking about the knowledge of God. It is, the, it is the foundation upon which we stand. It is the truth that dispels darkness, and it gives us the assurance that we are approving the right things in life, and therefore life can be good, and we can rest. And we're told here to grow in that knowledge, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge. There's something we're to be growing in. And in reality here, knowledge and love grow together. No, do it not. Does it not? Excuse me. Knowledge and love grow together. Our love gets more mature and intelligent as we grow in the knowledge of God. That's what we need. We need to feed on the Word of God. Greek interlinear, interlinear slow down a little, translates this knowledge deeper knowledge. Deeper knowledge. God wants to bring us deeper and deeper and deeper because it reveals to us himself. That's what we see in the Word of God. When we, when we get wisdom, we get the knowledge of God. And that knowledge comes one way, through diligent learning and applying ourselves to God's Word. And it doesn't happen just even if we sit once a week in church on Sundays if that's our only exposure to the Word. It happens when we go home and discuss what we learn in Sunday school or church with our children around the table Sunday morning. It's when we spend time in His Word and our family and personal devotions. It's when we spend time with believers enjoying the joy of the Lord together. And that's why 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed of rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, Philippians 1 describes a believer who's not ashamed, one who's filled with the fruits of righteousness to bring glory and praise to God. And that comes one way. It's through an increased knowledge of God's Word. It's simple, isn't it? And so often across our country and world, people are not discerning and they're not maturing because they're spiritually starved. And God is doing this work in us, but He's telling us in this passage, part of this, this formula, part of this approach to me doing a, God doing a good work in us on the day of Christ means that we have to grow in the knowledge of Him. And we have to grow in, in love for Him. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, it begins at our birth as Christians. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. God's, God's instructions right from the beginning. And I don't know what happens. Because Christians, young Christians, are often like babies. All they want to do is eat. And I see that. 
I see in churches sometimes people getting saved and coming into the church, and when the service is over, they want to, you know, they just want to talk about it more. They want to meet more often. They want to fellowship with the saints. And they find out that so many of the saints aren't filled with the joy of the Lord. And instead the discussion is about everything but the Lord. And they begin to lose their appetite. First, Second Peter 3.18 says, To all of us, old and young, who have grown in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 tells us why the Scripture is inspired. It says, It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, the person of God, you prefer, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Psalm 32.8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Psalm 25, 9, the humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. Psalm 119, verse 66 says this, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. And that wonderful passage of Matthew 11, 28 and 29, come unto me all you are who labor and are heavy laden, laden, and I will give you rest. Take your my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's how we find that rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God's objective more than anything else in our lives in the work of forming Christ in us is to teach us, to teach us, to teach us. And that's why studying the word publicly together is so important. That's why fellowshipping together is so important. That's why reading the Bible is so important. That's why meditation and memorization are so important. Because it feeds our souls. And helps us to be the people that God wants us to be. And while we think that we can, we get through life with the good. You know, I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm, I'm responsible at my job. I'm getting my, my home chores done. And I'm taking care of my family. And, you know, I'm a good neighbor. And maybe I contribute to a few charities. And we think all those things are good things. And they are good things. God's not saying they're bad things. But sometimes God has something more excellent for us. And that's an intimacy of the walk of Christ that expresses itself in in seeking Him and His will in our daily lives, of, of, of opening ourselves up to His molding hand, and of embracing the truth that sets us free in our lives. See, God's Word, the Bible, is a revelation to us. Isn't it? God's revealing to us. That's what this book is about, His person. And the beauty of the Bible is that while you learn its teachings, its dynamics, its, its interactions, and all the history lessons of how God deals with people, what unfolds is, is the beauty of our God. That's what unfolds. You know, it's, it's not that the Bible repeats to you, to you and I over and over, God is good, God is wonderful, God is great, He's, though He is. We see it in how He handles us, how He trains us, His patience with us, His mercy and His grace, all He's provided for us and promised us, His ability to, to control history and order the affairs of men. We see the beauty and the wonder of Almighty God. And when we embrace it, we also find protection, do we not? And that's what this sermon's all about. It's discerning those things that are bad for us. Because even though we might think they are okay, God says sometimes they're not so good. And we settle for the good. And it's the discernment that the Word of God gives us and brings us, protects us from being caught up with the wrong truth, the wrong way of thinking, the wrong way of living as we see God revealed in His Word. 
And to put simply, in, in, in this uh, song we sing, The Solid Rock, we build our house upon the rock, which is Christ. And that's the firm foundation we all need, isn't it? So we have protection and stability and safety in Him. And we also have guidance, do we not? The Bible likes our way. <clears throat> and that's why the, <clears throat> the Word of God, <clears throat> excuse me, the Word of God needs to be our, our daily sustenance in life. That's why you put verses up on your bulletin boards, on your refrigerators, or hang them on your wall, put them on your dashboard, because you spill what you're filled with. Other man thinks in his heart, so is he. And that is, and that's the only way God is able to make us more and more and more like Christ and give us the discernment to navigate life. I heard recently an example of discernment. This is kind of a more biblical, general one. Someone pointed me to a Message by Alistair Bay, maybe some of you know him, a Scottish speaking, a sounding preacher. And he mentioned this in a message in regards to homosexuals. And Christians are often wondering how do we view and manage um, those who um, are in that homosexual lifestyle. And he said this, and this is an exact quote, but I think it represents what he said. He said, The world either hates or affirms those involved in a homosexual lifestyle. That seems to be true, doesn't it? But the Bible does not allow the Christian to, to do either. And I think it was a, was a wonderful point. But what's the, what's the point of discernment there? It was the Bible. The Bible doesn't allow us to do either. We know that hate from the Bible was never justified towards people. These are people God created. God loved. Jesus died for. People God wants to rescue. They're not awful people. They're God's the creation. But we also know that the Bible calls homosexuality a sin, and it is. And therefore, we love the sinner for whom Christ died. We don't condone his lifestyle, but how come his sin is any worse than my sin? The sin I was rescued from, or saved out of, or delivered from. The sin is sin before God, and while some sins have greater personal and, and cultural repercussions than others, we're all sinners saved by grace. We all come just as I am. We're all saved by grace through faith. None of us are des more deserving of God's grace than the other. You might say, well, what about their lifestyle? Well, God's going to instruct them just like he is me. Have any of us arrived? Have we escaped the clutches of sin in our lives? I know that's why we're sitting here this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. We need deliverance. And God will, will deal with them in their sin and their growth as his child just like he does me. That's biblical discernment. That's the point the Bible brings us to. It doesn't bring you to hate them, nor does it bring you to confirm that lifestyle because we're going to be tolerant of it. No one said we love the sin. And so that's one of just one example I wanted to share with you this morning of the way the Bible brings light to a difficult situation in our lives. And the only way we know that's right is because that's what the Bible says. And that's the way we know what to approve of and what to disapprove of in my life as, as well as in the culture in which we live. And I appreciate the fact that Alistair Bay said the Bible was the basis for that perspective, isn't it? One other thing you notice here in Philippians chapter 1 here is that as we go from abounding love that abounds more and more knowledge and all discernment, that it might result in approving things that are excellent, is you begin to realize that those things are connected. God expects us to love the excellent. Because you can learn the Bible 
and not embrace its values in your life. Not really love the good. You can have a knowledge of God, even as Christians, and yet not really live it, not really embrace it, not really love it. And it's good to grow in knowledge, but I believe the only way you're going to gain discernment is when you embrace that knowledge in your daily life, the teachings, the principles, as God, as you, as you open yourself up before God and His Word, and as He instructs you and I in the way we ought to go, we begin to have discernment towards those things that are destructive and harmful in our lives. And so we're to love. We're expected as God's children to love the things of God. Embrace those things. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. In Amos 5.14, in the first part of verse 16, says this, Seek good and not evil, that you may live, so the Lord God of hosts will be with you. As you have spoken, hate evil, love good. Establish justice in the gates. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord God, therefore, the Lord of God of hosts says, and so on. Simple. It should be simple. We should hate those things that rob us of the excellent will of God, the excellent perspectives of God, the excellent ways of God, the excellent practices of God, because they keep us from the fulfillment of the abundance of God that's promised here in this passage. Turn with me, if we go back to Psalm 119, Psalm 119, our scripture reading, and you could read through this whole psalm and get a, get a, and get a wonderful feel, a perspective for the psalmist's love for God's word, but let's just zero in on our scripture reading this morning. Psalm 119 and verse 97. And it's just this is just a passage that just lifts you up. It kind of picks you up out of your shoes and out of your chair and lifts you up to realize the glory of the revelation of God in our lives. When he starts in verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. And that's the love that God wants to develop in us. That's an abounding, growing love. As we grow in the knowledge of God, it delights us. I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. That's how the psalmist came to love the Word of God. He was occupied with it. He was thinking of it. You know, there's times in our lives when, you know, we could put in a set of earbuds and listen to a message. A message from here, from, there's so many resources out there to, li to listen to. You know, honestly, when, when a, a person sent me this, a link to this message from Alistair Bay, I thought, well, I'm going to get a really busy few days. I don't know when I'm going to have time to listen to this. Well, God says, guess what? I'm going to wake you up about 3 in the morning, and you're not going to be able to get back to sleep. <laughs> so I listened to it at 3 in the morning. I wanted to text him back that great message at, you know, at 3.40 when the message was over, but I, was, I didn't do that. <laughs> but how much do we spend listening to the Word of God and appreciating those teachers that can teach us the Word of God? It's my meditation all that I day. Through your commandments, your commandments makes me wiser than my enemies. That means we ought to be smarter than the people around us. I'm not saying intellectually, you're going to win a Nobel Prize for some area of excellence, but you can be wiser in life, how to navigate life, how to view life, how to enjoy life, how to rise above our circumstances and when we trust the sovereignty of our God, oh, the, the, the Word of God just lifts us up and makes us wiser because they're ever with me. That means they never fail. I have more understanding than my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. 
I don't know if I'm going to get this story exactly right, but I remember the little girl that, that had to write a report in grade school and uh, about something sensational or something she wrote about crossing the Red Sea. And uh, um, the teacher told her after reading the report, he said, well, you know, this is fairy tale. So this didn't really happen. She said, yes, it did. You know, and I praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He did. And, and, she, and the teacher tried to gently let her down and say, well, you know, we don't really think, you know, the, the waters parted. Maybe they, they um, it was just a drought and the waters were only maybe six inches deep. And, and, uh, and, she's in, 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 and they managed to cross, you know, wade through the water. You know, wasn't nothing miraculous. And she says, praise the Lord. The little girl says, well, what do you mean? And so, well, praise the Lord that God could draw the gypsies in six inches of water. <laughs> it's being smarter than your teachers, isn't it? I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. You see, obviously the psalmist is directing us to biblical knowledge and wisdom. And as a result, verse 101, I restrain my feet from every evil way that I might keep your word. The word of God delivers us from bad things, doesn't it, in our lives. It keeps us. I have not departed from your judgments, the Bible, for you yourself have taught me. I always love the double personal pronouns in the word. He himself, you yourself. Makes God really personal, doesn't it? You yourself has taught me. And that's what's going on in our lives. Philippians 1.6, God's begun that work, and he himself is teaching us what we need. And that's delightful. Because, you know, even as a preacher, I don't know what you need to hear this morning. Your wife might think you know what you need to hear this morning, but I don't. Even if I pretend I think I do, I don't. And even there's times when I might preach a message, so I think I know what you need to hear, and the comments I hear afterwards are about nothing about what I thought you needed to hear. Because you're in God's hands. He himself teaches you, and we can leave each other in God's hands, can't we? And so verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And if you give God the chance, you'll find that the excellent things, the excellent perspective, sweetens our taste. It changes our lives. It causes us to live not just as good Christians, but as excellent. As Christians living the excellent way, the higher way. As the sweetness of God's word in person is sweetens our lives. And he ends on this note, though I, through your precepts I get understanding, if I hate to be false way. And I wanted to do that this morning, or as we do that this morning, we realize that that last phrase, which we kind of sometimes shudder at, I hate every false way. When we see what leads up to it, it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense. That all the light, of, all of the life and light and the abundance that the Word of God brings to my life, I'm going to hate every false way that robs us from me. That ensnares me in another kind of lifestyle, a just good old moral religious lifestyle. And we have to realize, Christians, I believe that we live in a time and even in a region where, where we have a God and country religion. There's people all over our area that you know believe in God and country. And we think that's good. Well, belief in God is always good. But is it excellent? Is that how God wants us to live? A nod to God? Acknowledge God? Or does your God want to be intimate with us? To, to thrill our senses 
That's what the taste represents here. With this person and his presence. And in reality, it was love in our lives. If you go back to Philippians chapter 1, as we wrap this up, we return then, once again, to the conclusion of sincerity, blamelessness, and being filled with the fruits of righteousness. You know, there's maybe three words that kind of jump off the page, first of all, on this passage to me. One is abounding in verse 9, one is excellent in verse 10, and one is filled in verse 11. All talking about the abundance of God and the walk with Him. Why do we forfeit all that and settle for the good in our lives? Just the upright and the moral. When a close walk with Christ can bring a bounty, excellence, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, and of course, one phrase, the glory and praise of God, indicating, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so we have a choice, don't we? I think this passage kind of puts us at that crossroads in our lives. Are we going to just settle for the good? Doing the right thing once in a while? The moral life? The non-offensive life? Or are we going to seek the excellence of the presence and person of God in the daily walk that we may approve those things in our lives that will cause our light to shine, will encourage our love for the brethren by which the world knows us, and, and develop unity in our lives so the world might see the beauty and wonder of our Savior in our lives and in our midst. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this challenge, Father. And, and you know us so well, Father. You know how we so often are content with the good. We get stuck in the rut of a legalistic rut of morality, of doing the good things, Father. And, and you want life to be so much more. You want that good to be lived in light of your presence and, and the ability of your power, directed by your Spirit with the joy of the Lord, emanating from a heart that is growing in its love for your word and love for you. And so, Father, pray that we be those who be disciplined to make that choice, to grow in knowledge, and allow that knowledge to give us a discernment as we embrace the teachings you give us, that the things in our lives might be the excellent, might be honoring and glorifying to you. So apply these things now to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name.